And if you look at it from that point of view, then you know we all need, I think, somewhere about 1,800 uh, kilocalories a day or 9 megajoules, you know, of what is basically solar energy that, that has to be collected. But collecting it in itself uh, takes energy, you know. Even if uh, you're a hunter-gatherer and you're going out, you know, you, you may well uh, only require um, 1,800 calories, but that's if you're sitting about doing not very much. If you're actually out, you know, looking for calories, then uh, you may spend as much as, you know, 3,000 uh, calories or even more in gold climbs. So there's an energy cost to um, actually uh, collecting the energy. Welcome to Activist MNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Derek Ross. Derek's a Nova Scotia resident who's been a chorus member in theatrical productions for four decades in shows such as The Pirates of Penzance by Gilbert and Sullivan. He and his wife also run A Bed and Breakfast. In part one, we spent the first half talking about the non-economic topics of music and musical theater and solar panels and electric cars. Today, we continue our conversation on the basics of Georgism and its relationship to MMT. And now, back to my conversation with Derek Ross. Enjoy. larger picture that's going on. No, I agree with that. I think that's uh, uh, quite a reasonable way of looking at it. Um, I think in, in some ways, you know, Georgism is a lens as well, in some ways. I'm saying Georgism, but I mean, basically it's, it's, it's classical economics. It's a different way of looking at things. And the, the, the big difference between the classical economics of Henry George and uh, our modern economics is that natural resources were built into the uh, the, the sort of the, the 19th century view of economics. You know, when we say land, we're not just talking about you know the ground you stand on. Uh, we're talking about you know the the light, the air, the um, all basically the entire universe. What what we would nowadays call natural capital or natural resources, and uh, even the, you know, even the frequency, the frequency like internet, you know, frequency like. I don't know the terminology for it, but basically, you know, you're allowed to use this bandwidth for television, for internet, or whatever. Exactly right. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's a perfect example of uh, of um, of the sort of thing that Georges would consider to be land, although it's hmm. not what like um, you know 
you would normally mean by the term when you're, you're using it in everyday conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically about natural resources. I I agree with what you're saying about the um, the fact that it's it's too narrow. I think it's a focus because um, in many ways, as I said, you can't expand the Georgist idea to include the government by basically saying the government is the prime landlord. And actually, if you look back to you know, like 1066 and you know sort of the the Norman conquest of England or whatever, that very much was the case. I mean, um, King William I saw himself as the the landlord of of the country, and there was a hierarchy going down from him, um, which made that very clear. You know, landlords and sub-landlords all the way down to uh, the poor old peasant who was actually like uh, growing the, the potatoes or whatever. In some ways, it's, it's a question of how you look at it. But I do think that, um, as I say, Georgism did not explain money very well. MMT does. And that's why I think there's a, there's a real place for a synthesis there, you know. I know that uh, Warren Mosler certainly, um, although he's not a Georgist himself, um, certainly the, the tax he normally talks about, uh, the real estate uh, tax. And, uh, yeah, I mean, most, uh, most Georgists would be happy uh, just see that as a good tax. Maybe not a perfect one, but certainly, you know, a, a better one than uh, most of the taxes we have in place just now. Not not so much because of the um, funding the government thing, but because there are certain behaviours that we need to, you know, get happening. We, we need to uh, be able to provision the, the government. We need to stop people using um, high-carbon fuels, that sort of thing. And, yeah, the, uh, the, there are taxes on natural resources which uh, will um, persuade people to uh, behave differently from what they're doing just now, you know. Is MMT missing anything? Or is, does Georgism basically just fit within that pretty neatly? Oh, I think it fits within. I mean, this, you know, this... I think that MMT, it's not so much that it's missing something, but I think... it. I don't think it focuses enough on what happens within the private sector. I don't think that's to say it can't. I actually am, I really like the sectoral balance analysis part of MMT, just because it does allow us to break down the economy into different groups and you know see how they interact from both a monetary point of view and a resources point of view. I mean, normally sectoral balance analysis is uh, used to show how money flows between um, you know different parts of the economy, but the good thing about it is it doesn't just have to show how money and debt operates. It can show how um, any commodity behaves. You know, if we want to see you know how water, for instance, is handled within the economy, you know, you can break it up into again the the owners of water resources, the uh, water issuers, so to speak. And the water users, the rest of us, and just see how that operates. Sectoral balance analysis is actually quite a quite a, an important, significant tool. It, it it could be used for a lot more than it actually is at the moment. And that's that's one place where I think we do need to get a bit more work done in, in MNT is on just the interchange, you know, the exchange between. Uh, resources and and money that, that goes on. Um, I think that's still not clearly understood 
just how MMT actually does suggest that prices are set in in the real world. You know, it's all very well saying that you know if the government spends money and taxes it back. Well, that's great. That's, that's fine. That's true. When we are talking about inflation or uh, about the prices of things, you know, I think it's important just to remember that really the base prices for a lot of stuff really are set the way Warren Mosler says. You know, it really is a question of the government sets the base price. Now, if there's an item that's in short supply, it may well be that the, the actual price is higher than the government would want. But the fact is, if the government decides not to pay for something any more than a, a set price, the, the money, the lack of money that will eventually arise means that the price won't stray too far from what the government wants to pay. And that's particularly yeah. true with uh, labour. Um, it's maybe less true with some other things where there's a big private sector demand for yeah. consumption. Yeah, I, th- I think that's one area where um, a bit more research should ha- happen. Again, I, I think that in energy uh, terms, that's particularly true. You know, we have, you know, the U.S. government as uh, sole supplier of the U.S. dollar. But when we look in the other side for the resources, they are not the sole supplier of the oil supply. You know, so um, yeah, if you want to deal with dollars, the, the price of the dollar in oil is going to be set by what the U.S. government is prepared to pay for oil. But the price of oil generally is going to be set by what you know, the Saudis or the other big um, and producers agree to accept as the, as the price. And I think mm-hmm. that's been quite obvious you know, right now, actually, with the, the differential pricing that's, uh, that's set by the Saudis uh, for Europe and for uh, North America and South America and whatnot. That, that was basically the cause of the OPEC oil crisis. OPEC decided yeah. to raise their prices. The, and actually, you know, uh, kind of an aside, but kind of not, is the only, the real causes of inflation, as I understand it, and I'm sure that there's more, but I think what I'm saying is, what I'm about to say is right, that it's caused by catastrophe, it's caused by bad politics, and it's caused by market power. And market yeah. power is really an extension of bad policy, of allowing yeah. the market to have that much power. So the OPEC oil crisis was caused by OPEC choosing to raise their prices in revenge against the United States supporting Israel. And combined with the bad policy of making way too much of our economy dependent on that one product and leaving us vulnerable in that way. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd agree with that, Jeff. In fact, I'd take it one stage further and say it, it's no coincidence that the uh, the OPEC crisis happened shortly after the U.S. production, domestic production of oil dropped far enough that they were no longer able to export it. Really? Okay. That's the first I'm hearing that. Yeah. Well, if you if you, if you look into um, the sort of the oil production in the U.S., you'll find that the oil imports. Well, basically, up, up until the end of the 60s, um, the U.S. was basically self-sufficient in oil. That's not to say that it didn't export and import it, but the, the fact was it ex- exported more than uh, it imported. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, from the beginning of the 70s onwards, it, it started having to import oil because energy requirements or desires kept on uh, increasing and domestic production could not keep up. 
So domestic production didn't decrease. We just stopped sending. We start. We started using more of it. Is I think that's what you're saying. Well, it is basically. Um, it's, it's a combination. Basically, there's, there was peak oil production in the U.S. Basically, in the late sixties, early seventies, something. I, I'm not sure the exact date. I need to have a look at the graph. But um, it became cheaper to buy Saudi oil because the production costs were lower. Mm. Um, Demand kept increasing. The the production within the U.S. did not. In fact, it didn't really recover until um, fairly recently when they they developed the fracking process, which has produced quite a lot of cheap oil or cheaper oil relatively recently and, and put the U.S. back into a a brief position. The drawback is it's not... Yeah, as long as you don't just pull back, as long as you don't pull back and see the devastation that that has wrought in other ways. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. not going to argue with that one. Uh, but I'm looking, at, I'm looking on it purely in terms sure, of... Sure, sure, of course. That's the thing. Um, and from that point of view, which is the way that, you know, most of the, the, the money people um, do look at it, mm-hmm. um, and then it, it became a good thing for them, anyway. Which has, you know, led to um, you know the the relative weakness of uh, OPEC more recently. But the fact is that fracking has achieved its purpose, but it's it's not quite so effective as as just large quantities of cheap oil. And um, you need to put quite a lot of energy in to get energy out, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, wasting water and the poisoning the water and all that stuff. All that stuff, yeah, all those stuff. Yeah. But you see, those, those things don't necessarily cost, particularly if there's no uh, enforceable regulations and mm-hmm. um, cost in money terms. And that's all that you know shareholders are interested in. Sure. I mean, the thing is, it's a bit unfair to shareholders because it's not just shareholders. We all have benefited from it, and um, you know, so from that point of view, we're we're all to blame to some extent. But the the fact is that unless you you know you really do know how it works, you know you can be forgiven for going oh well you know it'll be okay. But I don't know. I, I think with the amount of evidence that's building up for uh, for climate change at the moment, you know there are fewer and fewer people who are you know not persuaded that we need to do something, you know fairly soon, if not now. If not but, 20 years ago. If not 20 years ago, yeah. No, you're right. But um, anyway, I'm just looking again at the incentives, at the monetary incentives. To sure, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. From that point of view, yeah, it it makes sense uh, from a monetary incentives point of view. Sure. Um, and it, it, it is, uh, you know, uh, why I, I think that OPEC, it may have lost uh, the whip hand for uh, 20 years, but... If we carry on and do nothing, I mean, forget about the uh, the environmental damage. The fact is that uh, it will allow them to um, uh, basically take charge again, um, right. strongly. But anyway, that's uh, that's all dependent on uh, on policy, and who knows whether policy will change for the better or not. Right. Uh, so, so MMT basically is a framework in which Georgism can sit very neatly. That seems Anything. to be correct. Yeah. And I, and actually, I, I spoke with someone a year ago who said that he, he's from Pakistan and he, he you know, discovered MMT and whatever. And, and he's also, I, I 
really rough, but but he kind of considers MMT and Islamic economics. You know, yep. they're two separate things, but but they're both very important to him. And, and again, MMT is a framework that enhances yep. Islamic economics. So MMT enhances or you know facilitates or whatever uh, Georgism as well. Where neoclassical yep. where neoclassical economics really makes those things impossible. I mean, I'm not sure about Georgism, but at least with Islamic economics and and even just yeah. even just the ability to pull back and see yeah. the bigger picture, MMT yeah. allows that. It not just allows it, it encourages it. It requires it for yeah. you to pull back and see the larger picture. And there is no, I mean, there really is no picture larger than that. Really, it really covers, you know, everything. I mean, in a sense, because. You know, I think John Harvey's work on on uh, exchange rate determination and Fadel's work on developing countries. I think those three things together. You know, what's bigger than that? What's I mean, what's bigger than that? You know, I, I mean, in, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, setting aside the universe off of our planet. I mean, that really covers everything. I think so. Everything that is compatible with that bigger picture should fit rather well into that. I think yeah. so Georgism and Islamic and economics and, you know, truly dealing with a climate crisis and whatever else. I don't know. But I think that's why, uh, you know, like uh, Michael Hudson's stuff fits in so well, you know, with uh, the MMT, why he was able to, you know, like join the group, so to speak. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's an anti-Georgist from the point of view that he doesn't like a lot of Georgists. Uh -huh. But if you look at what he actually understands... It basically is Georgeism. Just you know, I know that as, as a younger man, he was involved with a lot of quite right-wing uh, uh, people who were part of the Georgist movement. But I think mm. that sounds a lot on it. Mm. Um, and it's true. I mean, again, like MNT, well, maybe not quite like MNT, but Georgism does actually attract people from all over the political spectrum because it's it's one of these uh, it, like MNT. It is orthogonal. Necessarily uh, to the the policies, it, it it provides a lens of understanding. The policies that you actually implement as a result of that understanding depend on other beliefs that you may have. You know, and mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, quite a few years now, I, I used to I suppose, troll uh, various groups by putting up different versions of MMT depending on whether you were, uh, uh, you know, an environmentalist or a, a, a fascist or. Uh, you know, <laughs> a left-winger or whatever, because it is possible to do it. I mean, they look at, you know, the basics of a, an MMT policy are that you have a job guarantee of some sort so mm -hmm. that uh, and you spend money that way to do the inflation control. And you can basically, you know, set up most political uh, persuasions so that they have some way of getting money out, you know, whether everybody joins the army or, you know, whether somebody plants trees type of thing. But you know, it, it's probably possible to uh, to make that work. Yeah, it, MMT is very wide. It does really include um, everything. Maybe not in quite as much detail as it it might. But the good side of that is it means that a lot of people can pick up the ideas and go, oh yeah, that fits in with what I already believe. You know, it has unfinished business, but yeah. what is there is solid. Yeah. Solid. No, I, I, I think so. Yeah.
Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's obviously somewhat of a function that it's it's rather young, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. 20, 25 years old, and obviously not that huge of a population of of academics anyway. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, I'm not sure regarding you know if there's anything as far as you want to finish regarding NMT and Georgism, uh, you know how you discovered it. If there's anything more recently, and when that ends, then we can. Uh, we can move on to the specific reading if you'd like. No, that's fine. I mean, as I say, I think that it's given me a good understanding of um, how economics works generally, both, both Georgism originally and NMT more more latterly. So um, I feel pretty happy actually with uh, you know my my current understanding of economics. I mean, I, I think when I think myself about Greece Forward, because as I say, I'm always trying to find something, something more, so a better explanation uh, of what we got. And then um, I still think hard about about the inflation side of it. It's not just about the inflation, but it's, it's about like the price level. And um, you know, for instance, things like. Um, a job guarantee is a great system. How do you set the, the basic wage for in it? You know? And why is it we have to set it to this amount rather than that amount? And we're not going to pay everybody, you know, like a thousand dollars a week. <laughs> you know, you can you can set it to be a very small amount or a very large amount. And if it's a very small amount, then people are going to starve. And if it's a very large amount, you're going to get huge inflation. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, there is a there is a best amount, so to speak, to to set it to, because whatever amount you do set it to, then um, prices will adjust until right. eventually, you know, that the the dollar is worth enough that even if you're only paying them, like you know, ten cents an hour, it's it's gonna, you know, uh, work out. But ten cents is actually quite a valuable, you know, a cent is worth quite a lot, but uh-huh. the um, the drawback is that the, the pain and suffering involved before you actually reach that stage would obviously be horrendous. You know? So um, I, I think there, there's work still to be done you know, on, the, that, on that side, which is where the energy stuff that I, I mentioned to you um, really comes in, and where I don't think that either Georgism or MMT really you know, have a full explanation of yet. I think there is more to be said. And that's why, you know, I've also, I have been looking into um, the role of energy. In many ways, you can look on human beings as having an, an ecology as well as an economy, you know. It's like we've got to um, be able to survive in, um, in our particular niche or society or whatever. And we also, we have to do that partly by... Um, like meeting the, the energy requirements or the the food requirements or the, the water requirements for living. And partly we have to meet the social requirements. You know, we need to pay others what we owe them when we said we would pay them. You know, we, we've got to decide when doing something means we owe somebody else and when doing something means, you know, no change in the, the, the status quo. And as I say, I think that's where um, the energy side that I talked about uh, earlier in the week 
comes into things. The fact is, when you look at uh, human activity, energy is probably actually the most important part of it. You can see that if you basically just look at food. Food is basically concentrated sunlight. It's, you know, it's chemical energy and it's uh, been collected in the first instance by plants as, uh, from the sun. Then it's either eaten directly by us or is you know, uh, collected and eaten by cows or sheep or pigs or whatever. And uh, again, ends up as, as chemical energy and food for us. And if you look at it from that point of view, then you know, we all need like, somewhere about 1,800 uh, kilocalories a day or 9 megajoules, you know, of what is basically clear energy that, that has to be collected. But collecting it in itself uh, takes energy, you know. Even if uh, you're a hunter-gatherer and you're going out, you know, you, you may well uh, only require um, 1,800 calories but that's if you're sitting about doing not very much. If you're actually out, you know, looking for calories, then uh, you may spend as much as, you know, 3,000 uh, calories or even more in cold climbs. So there's an energy cost to um, actually uh, collecting the energy. And that's true not just for energy itself, but also, you know, for things like water, which we absolutely need. But you've got to spend energy in, in going out and collecting that. Even the gold that heavily loves for coins, or all the gold bugs do anyway, the reason that gold is expensive is because you need to spend, you need to use a lot of energy to uh, collect it, you know. It involves crushing up a whole lot of rocks, you know, and it's uh, not uh, cheap doing that, whether you've got men with hammers or uh, whether you've got... Uh, really expensive machinery to do it, you know. Either way, you're either paying for the, the, the food energy to, to feed people or you're paying for the, um, um, you know, the, the fossil fuel energy or whatever it happens to be to uh, run the machines, you know. So energy is important to the ecology, certainly, of how things work. And so hunter-gatherers basically spend a lot of time just collecting food. You know, gold miners spend a lot of energy uh, collecting gold. And the price of anything just about can, uh, you know, can be at, at the base to be either the cost of uh, of collecting. It is basically the cost of collecting the energy. Food and gold are very different in the sense that food is immediately, quickly consumed and goes away. Yeah. Yes. And gold needs to be stored and protected for all time. Yes, it does. But the fact is, once it's been stored, you know, it's been taken out of a hole in the ground and put back into a hole in the ground, you know, yeah. it's as if it wasn't there anymore. You know, it's exactly the same with, with money for currency users. I mean, I know that, you know, for a currency issuer, the money is can be produced in any quantities required. But for us, uh, for currency users, it's a bit trickier. We either need to collect existing money or we need to get a loan, you know, which is basically the creation of new money by um, some other person. That works for money, but it doesn't really work for real resources. You know, um, we can owe real resources, but we can only really collect them from other people or collect them from the universe as a whole. And so, well, the, the fact is that because of that, they, they have a real value because um, we need to spend energy to collect them. That's the point. Okay. Um, 
And it doesn't matter really what the thing is. Even, you know, something like Bitcoin, where um, it's been set basically to be, you know, very similar in the way it operates to, to gold, you know, with, you know, the, uh, the, the limit on the, the total number of uh, Bitcoins that can be produced and whatnot. Bitcoin is an artificial scarcity. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, absolutely. But then so, so is any form of money. I mean, the reason that, you know, the dollar is scarce, and there's a lot of people who say that uh, they can't uh, get dollars, is because, um, you know, they, the government produces them, and um, it's not producing as many as are necessarily required to pay the taxes, you know? In a country sure. which is running a government surplus, there is absolutely a scarcity of, of money, because the government is producing less money than it is asking for in taxes, you mm-hmm. know? So, yeah, absolutely. It's an artificial scarcity. It's a, a very good way of putting it. But, yeah, what the point I was going to make about Bitcoin is, why is Bitcoin currently worth $10,000 uh, or whatever it is? Uh, because they want it to be worth that much. That's why. <laughs> it's, because it, no, it's because it costs that much to make a new Bitcoin. You know, currently, the algorithm is set so that um, you need to spend that amount in electricity bills, basically, to uh, get a new Bitcoin. And therefore, a Bitcoin miner, if he's already, you know, if he's just spent you know, $9,990 in uh, creating a new Bitcoin, is he really going to give it to you for less than, you know, $10,000? Not really, you know. So, um, it's a very basic part of the cost of anything, not just in money, but just Part of the, the physical cost is, is the energy cost to uh, doing things. I, I have a couple questions. Um, yep. That doesn't seem right to me. That it, if if you're saying that the uh, the cost to mine a Bitcoin is ten thousand dollars and that's why it costs ten thousand dollars because of the cost to mine it, then how does that explain the, the massive fluctuations that it has? It's not because the miners decide that it's worth suddenly. You know, twenty percent less yeah, two hours later. Yeah. No, I understand that. Nobody's actually um, deciding uh, what the cost is. What's happening is that um, there's a certain amount of new Bitcoin being created, and those new Bitcoin, you know, they cost whatever the cost now to just is to create them. And currently, it's somewhere around ten thousand dollars, whatever it is. But there's also a whole bunch of existing Bitcoin, and like you say, it, in a sense, it's an artificial scarcity. If nobody is selling bitcoins, and um, because they're all expecting it to go up, but everybody wants, or but a whole lot of people want to buy bitcoins, then their only choice is to buy from the miners. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, people sell bitcoins, as, existing bitcoins, as well as buying them because they want to cash out. They want the the dollars, and when they sell those off. <laughs> those um, uh, bitcoins are already manufactured, so there's no cost to you know to to, to transferring them from one owner to another. Sure. So uh, if enough of them go out in the market, that's when the price of bitcoin collapses. You know, because who's going to bother creating a new one which costs ten thousand dollars when you can buy a, a second-hand one which is just as good and uh, you know only costs eight thousand dollars or five thousand dollars? You know. Right. So I, I think I think. I think the causation is the other way around. That, that the, I mean, the price is determined by group psychology. And yes. so if the group psychology has decided on a price, 
that is approximately the cost of the computer equipment required to mine another one, then that is how miners decide whether or not to mine more. Yes. So they don't, the miners don't decide on the price, but they nope. choose to mine or not mine based on the market price, which at the moment happens to be worth their while. Yes, yes. No, I agree. That is what we do, yeah. yeah. And it is psychology because the fact is if nobody wanted Bitcoin, it would have no value. The reason it has right. value is because people want it, yeah. Right, I, I, and I got, I got interested in Bitcoin when uh, Elon Musk tweeted in, I think it was May, and, you know, saying, oh, I don't like Bitcoin anymore. And that, you know, he decided to tell the world this instead of just making this decision privately for himself. He decided to tell the world about this, which <laughs> caused the price of Bitcoin to plummet 20% in two hours, which cost the entire worldwide value of Bitcoin and their millions of holders to lose $170 billion. Yeah. So, you know, so it's like, okay, so... A tweet, a single tweet by a single billionaire can cause that much devastation. You know, that, yes. that kind of shows what it is based on. And then, another, then a country decides, oh, let's make this our currency for all 7 million of our people. Yes. <laughs> you know, well, let's make all of our 7 million people vulnerable to Elon Musk's tweets. You know, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so I have another. I have another question. Um, going back to what you were call, talking about, uh, uh, food, uh, energy to get food. That you you need food to have energy, but you need energy to get food. Um, and can you talk about capitalism a little bit? Meaning, the you know capitalism gets way more food than we can possibly ever consume. I mean, that's an, maybe a little bit of exaggeration, but that's on, that's in the right. That's in the right ballpark. Capitalism is wasteful. It gets too much. We don't need it. And food, good kinds of food, or, you know, a good amount of good kinds of food goes bad. So that's even more energy wasted. And, and you know, create a, a bulk store, which we call BJ's or, or Sam's Club down here, you know, a bulk store of an obscene amount of food that, you know, just the amount of energy that it costs to, to you know, the, the, the balance of energy, basically. I, I, don't, I can't really okay. put my, I can't really get right. my mind around the idea, but I think you... I think I understand what you're getting at, though. What I would say here is that um, the problem with, with capitalism, as it currently is, capitalism isn't totally bad. And However, actually, actually let, me, let me interject one last thing before, before you continue, and that is deliberate waste. So like whole yeah. foods. They only want perfect-looking strawberries. So they dump, and I, I, I don't know if this is specifically true, but it's certainly generally true. They dump out the bad ones, even before there's a chance of selling them. They, they you know, for, uh, when restaurants close, they'll dump the food, or Wawa will dump their excess food instead of giving it to people who desperately need that food. So, please. Okay. Right. What I would say here is that the the issue is, it's, well, it's twofold. Basically, the idea of capitalism, I, I, I still think um, the best way of looking at it is the idea of with capitalism, you use money to buy something which you can then use to make more money than you originally um, spent to buy the stuff. That's basically what it comes down to. The problem with it, I think, in the current world is that the money 
unit we're using is not tied into the real world as well as it could be. The money basically is what's being collected. If we talked about energy or about hours work, then the waste would be a lot more obvious. Okay, It's not obvious at the moment because the people who are collecting the money, the, the, you know, the, the capitalists or the, the volunteers uh, at the top, are not the initial collectors. They're, they're collecting from people who are also collecting. So, you know, it, again, I'm encouraged to go back to a simpler example with food. Not because it only applies to food, but just as generally speaking, it's easier to think about it that way. But basically, you can think of two groups of people in a, a hunter-gatherer society, okay? And you've got the people who are out collecting the food, and perhaps you have the people who are sitting at uh, home because they're elderly or because they're children, I suppose, who can't collect the food but still need to eat. That works well in hunter-gatherer societies because people are basically you know, on the same level. Where it starts working more like the way we work is when you start getting uh, people who can force the others to do the collection while they just eat. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. you know the, the king with the, uh, uh, the the armies who can basically say, feed me and my soldiers, you know, otherwise we'll, uh, we'll come and lock you up or uh, well, you, we won't allow you to use the, the good hunting land that sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the, the big advantages of farming was it allowed us to um, feed a lot more people with a lot uh, less work, a lot less energy involved. One of the drawbacks, it meant that the person who actually owned the farmland could now basically sit down and go, well, you, know, you don't get to use the land unless you, um, you, you give me this much um, as, a, as a rent. And that's basically the problem with capitalism as a whole. When you're talking about whole foods and so forth there, the, the whole foods people aren't growing the, uh, the apples. They are just going, well, I want to collect them, but I only want to collect so many because um, if I try and sell too many, I won't be able to get a good price. And um, I don't want these ones because um, I don't care how much energy you spent in growing them. I didn't spend any energy in growing them, you know? Mm-hmm. So the hierarchy thing that we saw in feudalism, it's still there in modern capitalism. It's just not quite so obvious, you know? Um, it's dispersed. And it's diffused. It's so yeah. evenly spread that, that it's very hard to point at any one thing. Much harder, yes, it is. But it's still there, and that's why... Like Michael Hudson, I still think about Rontiers, you know, as being a major problem in society. I mean, um, they don't tend to own, you know, large sort of uh, feudal uh, domains of land anymore, but they do own, you know, sort of banks and, and this sort of thing. They do um, own things which are 
they're in short supply, uh, but which are essential, and they do take advantage. The drawback, as you say, is that because of that, we do get more waste than uh, we otherwise should, because the people who are doing the work are not the same as the people who are distributing, you know, and they have different agendas, and we don't care about um, the amount of energy that's already been spent, because that's all mm-hmm. sunk cost for somebody else, you know. So that that is an issue with the capitalism. It could, to a large extent, well, it could to some extent be fixed. You know, if we we did change to an energy accounting system instead of a money accounting system, but the fact is, it's as I say, it's not just ecology. Uh, you know, it's it's economy, and we we have these social relationships. There are certain people, you know, who because they have a lot of power, because everybody owes them, or they own the natural resources, or or whatever it happens to be, the, the patent, uh, the patents to windows, or you know whatever, they have a lot of power and they use it as they see fit, which isn't necessarily always to the, the benefit of the rest of us, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I, I do think that you know the MNT um, policy, the job guarantee, would fix quite a lot of problems. I don't think it would fix all the problems, though. Basically, we we have other policies that we need to be put into effect to curb the the over-large power of a lot of people. I think that, to a large extent, that was done after the Second World War. The implementation of of Keynes' ideas during the 50s and 60s, any of the other social problems of the eras, Monetarily speaking, it, it actually it, it really did work quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we can do away with capitalism entirely, and even if we do, then what do you replace it with? That's the point. We can't go back to all being hunter gatherers because you know the the world isn't big enough for for right. that to happen. It's not a great life. We, you know, we we've tried the socialist uh, experiment again in the Eastern Europe and, and Russia. And it worked, but it didn't work great. The same sort of problems come up. It's just that instead of the Rontiers being aristocrats and feudal lords, they turn into being bureaucrats and feudal lords, mm. you know? Mm. I kind of I kind of reject the whole idea of should we choose capitalism or should we choose yeah. socialism or communism. Like this idea of these simplistic labels. I, whatever the case, big changes are coming. Whatever we want to call it or not call it really doesn't matter, you know. I mean, I, I think instead of, you know, should we get rid of capitalism, and I, and I know that I, I'm sure that we're generally on the same page. I just am just like, you know, should we get rid of capitalism? What do we replace it with? It's like, what's what's the point of even talking about that, really? We just need to give people health care. We need to give people a job, and we need to, you know, prevent you know, we need to stop using fossil fuels and, and start having the conversations of what that means, which is a pretty big conversation to have. You know, it doesn't matter if we use if we stick with capitalism or try and go to socialism or whatever. These problems don't change. So let's just focus on the problems and see what happens, and let's take it from there. Um, I, I know that you. I, I'm sure that in general that we're we're almost entirely in agreement. It's uh, it's just. No, and I think I think we are absolutely. I mean, I I I think the important thing is what works. Be pragmatic, you know. I mean, in many yeah. ways, we had a, a much more mixed economy in the uh, the sixties and seventies, and 
by and large, it worked. You know, I mean, it's not perfect, nothing is, but uh, that's an important measure. Whether it's socialist yeah. or capitalist, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Keynesianism basically just gave people what they needed. Yep. I mean, it's just basically the golden age of capitalism basically just gave people what they needed. Maybe it was too much. You know, maybe we, you know, went overboard. But but life was much better because everybody, most people, got what they needed. And that, you know, regardless, it happened to work under a capitalist system just because that's what we happen to be. But, um, okay, so we, we did not get to your reading. So if there's anything you wanted to say regarding that, I mean, I guess a lot of it was kind of covered along the way. Um, but if you wanted to, if you wanted to mention the book, um, uh, and yeah, it, why don't you go ahead and do that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it makes sense. Uh, I was actually quite surprised when, uh, you know, you asked me uh, about sources. I had a look around to see, you know, just what there was, because, you know, to a large extent, I've picked it up as bits and pieces, uh, you know, um, over the years. So I didn't really have a single source. But yeah, mm. if you start looking at the energy economics on the web. There's quite a bit of published academic um, stuff about it. You know, some of it's more MMT aligned and some of it's less MMT aligned, just depending when it's written. But the ideas are there, and it's uh, you, you can pick the good out the bad, so to speak, and say, well, you know, that that looks like it makes sense. But it's one it's one of these. You know, if you are also uh, doing uh, looking at it as an energy uh, thing, then. You can also bring into the, um, you know, the mix the fact that, uh, you know, the government is spending so much on, well, on manufacturing goods because the manufacturing goods takes energy or mm-hmm. just plain on energy itself, you know, because uh, all these machines need to be fueled before uh, they work, you know. And mm-hmm. um, that, that's why, yeah, we don't want to uh, say the job guarantee is the only thing that's required to... Um, set the price level. Because, I mean, right. you can set the price level of job guarantee fine, and then if suddenly climate change, or, you know, eventually climate change has, uh, you know, has caused the uh, the potato to stop being a, you know, a food item, or, uh, you know, has said, you know, a disease has devastated the maize harvest, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter, you know, what price level the government set for the wages, because people are still going to starve, you know? Huh? Yeah, if there's no food, it doesn't matter how much money we have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if there's no resources, so, um, then, yeah, yeah, and that's why I think you know you do you must take the real resources are really important. You've got to take them into account when um, you're, you're looking at it. Yeah, MMT absolutely. I, I love the fact that it does talk about the shortages of things. You know, that the, the the resources are the important driver with inflation, not the uh, not the, the amount of money. But the amount of debt and the amount of um, resource that you you can buy, yeah, absolutely. I, I I'm all with the fact that uh, you know if you look at the Zimbabwe inflation or the um, Weimar inflation or even you know the current Venezuela inflation, it's all down to the fact that people are short of essentials. And when they're short of essentials, then it doesn't matter whether you've got a job guarantee in place or not. Uh, the fact is, then things are going to go up in price once people start to starve. <laughs> oh, on that note. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, is there is there anything is there anything else uh, that you would like to say uh, that hasn't been said? No, I'm fine, Jeff. Uh, no, I've enjoyed the conversation. Or you allowing me to rabbit on, anyway. 
Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Well, uh, you know, thank you for doing this. And, you know, especially thank you for, you were incredibly supportive through my presentation. I mean, you gave me so much valuable feedback regarding my presentation uh, earlier, early this year. And I think even a previous experience as well, which I don't recall specifically, but I feel like that we had kind of done that before as well. Um, uh, that was that was really invaluable. I mean, I'm in a way, it never came together. It really never came together, and I'm very disappointed about that. Like it was just too intense. Like I could never boil it down. But right. that's the bad. That's the bad side of it. But the good side of it is, it was really. I, I got a lot. I still got a lot out of the experience. Um, I learned a lot, of, and I came up with some really really valuable analogies that I still use. Um, so so yeah, I mean you were you were very supportive with with well, that. You, yeah, I mean it's just for your your as you say your personal sort of like your understanding. Um, yeah, I'm glad uh, that I was able to help. That's great. Well, as I say, I know how how much you know time and effort and whatever I I spent over the years trying to get to the bottom of well of all this stuff. Still am to some extent, um, and uh, I just you know wish that some of this stuff had come out you know, when I was in my 20s or, or 30s because um, I would have taken a, a different approach probably to investing than I, than I did because one of the areas where I do find it very useful is uh, looking at trends. You know, I mean, you're not going to say day to day what's happening in the stock market. I mean, you know, I, I look at um, the way that um, you know the deficits and whatnot are running in the US and in Canada and in um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, Europe I go, I know where I want to put my money, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So um, uh, it is important. I mean, you know, you don't tend to worry so much about um, investments when, uh, you know, you, you are, you know, your age or younger just because, um, you know, you've got so much else going on in your life. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's something you've got to, you know, you've got to keep a handle on because eventually it will become important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, it was really nice talking with you. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, we see each other a lot on intro and we talk in private messages and I look forward to more of that. But, um, yeah, thank you for taking the time to do this. It was great. Yeah, always a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me and I hope some of what you said is useful anyway. That's good. Well, have a good day then and we'll speak to you later. for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits 
and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn, and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Derek Ross. Derek's a Nova Scotia resident who's been a chorus member in theatrical productions for four decades in shows such as The Pirates of Penzance by Gilbert and Sullivan. He and his wife also run A Bed and Breakfast. In part one, we spent the first half talking about the non-economic topics of music and musical theater and solar panels and electric cars. Today, we continue our conversation on the basics of Georgism and its relationship to MMT. And now, back to my conversation with Derek Ross. Enjoy. <laughs> 